0: So I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. And so the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phineas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured.
1: If You've got your Bible there. Uh, as I say this every time, don't I? it be really helpful just to open it back to that passage in 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, just because then you can follow along and see uh, there what's in God's word. I've got a bit of a a kind of quiz, that's not the right word, Uh, question uh, to begin with. uh, Here, what do these things have in in common? This isn't too taxing on our brains. Uh, Crossed fingers, umbrellas inside, uh, touching wood, Friday the 13th, salt over your shoulder, black cats, broken mirrors, walking under ladders. Uh, superstition. Superstition. The thing that connects all those things is, is superstition. People do those things in the hope that, that bad things won't happen to them or in the hope that good things will happen to them. And uh, we live in a superstitious world, don't we? When we uh, open our Bibles, Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul tells us that it's clear when we look out on creation, on the world around us, that there is a, a God a creator who has a divine nature and eternal power. Lots of people don't acknowledge that. Paul says that that is plain to see in creation. Looking up at the mountains, looking up at the night sky, we know that there's a power that's greater than our own. And the idea that is behind a lot of these superstitions is that somehow, some way I can leverage that power to work for my own advantage, at least not to work against me. That's the idea behind a lot of these superstitions. And for many people, I think that is the allure of religion. And so the the businessman who's facing hard times, who's trying to balance the books, may in desperation pray. Pray, he's reached the end of himself. He realizes he can't do anything to th- fix the situation, so he may pray. He wants access to a power greater than his own for his business to be a success. Or maybe someone who is, who is sick, desperately sick, maybe they've exhausted all the resources of the NHS, which at the moment might not take a long time. Uh, maybe they've tried everything, and, and nothing is, is helping them. Maybe they've never ever prayed before, but in their desperation, they pray. They pray because if religion can make them well, then maybe it's of some value. The idea that there's something that I can do that will take divine power and put it into a harness like a horse and make it work for me. That's, a, that's an appealing idea, isn't it? People, people like that idea. I think that's what lies behind a lot of religious activity in our world today, trying to harness divine power. When we turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, today we see that it's possible for God's people uh, to be infected with this, this same kind of superstitious. Thinking, I think that's what we see here in one Samuel, chapter four. That sometimes instead of worshiping God, God's people just try to use God. Instead of worshiping God, they try to to use God. Let's uh, very quickly uh, just a recap of where we've been. Uh, maybe you've not been here on previous Sundays. Where we at? God has rescued a people for Himself. He's brought them out of Egypt out of slavery to Pharaoh. He's put them in the promised land and they've had uh, centuries now in the, in the promised land. Uh, and they, they've gone through this period that's called the period of the judges. It's a little bit chaotic. There's no cohesion to society. The religion isn't really run according to it's prescribed in God's word. And there's there's no king, and people are kind of making it up as they, they go along. And then we got in first Samuel. Uh, we see Hannah there. We saw her tears. Uh, she can't have a child, but she asks for a son, and, and she says, if she has a son, she'll she'll devote him to the Lord. And she's given Samuel. We also saw in chapter two that the leadership in Hannah's day was a corrupt leadership. There was Eli the priest, and then he was his two sons, Hopney and Phineas. And they were terrors, weren't they? They were marked by unrighteousness and ungodliness. They were corrupt. And then kind of out of that darkness and in that darkness, we've seen this boy Samuel grow just like a, a glimmer of, of light. And we saw, saw last week that through Samuel, God brought his word to his people. The word was rare in those days, but now there's a man, a prophet, a man who speaks uh, for God, to his people. There's all the description at the end of chapter three that none of Samuel's words uh, fall to the ground. I think what's a surprise when we go into chapter four is that in chapter four, Samuel's hardly mentioned. <laughs> Samuel's been, been like growing, hasn't he? And you realize he's, he's the one to watch. And now in chapter four, Samuel isn't hardly mentioned. In chapter five, he isn't mentioned. In chapter six, he isn't mentioned. And we come back to Samuel in chapter seven. But the focus now in chapters four and five and six is the ark of the Lord. The ark of the Lord. And what we see in this chapter is that the ark is lost. It's a lost ark. And chapter four begins with battle lines being drawn up. The battle is between Israel and the Philistines and Israel, we're going to see, are going to be defeated. And as we look at this passage, we're going to just spend the bulk of our time just trying to think clearly about this defeat that Israel experienced. It's a crushing defeat and we're going to think carefully about it. So let's try and get a handle on what's going on. Verse 1. Uh, now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped to Ebenezer. The Philistines encamped at Aphek. Israel are relative newcomers to this area. The Philistines are also relative newcomers at this time. And we're not told, are we, the reason for the battle? But the battle is going to happen. So you've got the picture. There's these two opposing armies. Battle lines are drawn up and then they go to war. And we really don't get any details about the battle apart from Israel are defeated and 4,000 soldiers die. And then as they regroup, just notice in, I think it's verse three, uh, the leaders of Israel, the elders of Israel, they ask a question. And it's a really good question. You can see it there. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? A good question is worth its weight in gold, and that is a really good question. They know that beyond the number of spears, beyond the number of soldiers that the Philistines have, ultimately they have lost because it was the Lord's doing. Why has the Lord defeated us today? They know that whatever they're dealing with, they're dealing with God. That's true for us, isn't it? Whatever we face in the week ahead, Ultimately, we are dealing with God. And I think really they should have let that question just just hang for a while. Why has the Lord defeated us? They should have let that question really, really bother them. But they, they don't. They just rush quickly for a solution. It seems they're not really interested in getting the answer to the question that they've asked. They just want a simple solution. So they say, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So probably lots of you here know kind of what this Ark of the Covenant was, but it may be those who aren't so familiar with it. The Ark of the Covenant was a a small wooden box that was overlaid with gold. It's pretty small, I think, got dimensions here. Uh, Three and three quarter feet long, uh, two and a quarter feet high and wide. It's not very big, is it? And the Ark of God represented the the presence of God with his people. And usually it would sit in the the Holy of Holies. It represented his rule. You can see it's described as uh, the Ark of God. It's given its full name there in verse four. It's the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. It represents his rule. It's his footstool on earth. This Ark of God also represents God's character. It's a revelation of who he is inside the the tablets of stone, the the 10 commandments that reveal God's character. And it also uh, represents uh, reconciliation. So it was on this ark once a year that the sacrifice of atonement would be made. The blood would be spread on the mercy seat. It told God's people that their God was a forgiving God. And so the people call for the, the Ark of the Covenant. They'd carried it into battle in the past. You may remember when they came out of, uh, out of the wilderness, across the Jordan. And as they went out to battle against Jericho, the Ark of God was out there in front. And so it seems that when they ask the question, why has is, why is the Lord defeated us today? It seems their answer is the Ark. We, we've not got the Ark. <laughs> We're doing it wrong, guys. Go, go back. Go back to Shiloh and get the ark. And then then we will win the battle. What's going on here? I think as we think carefully about defeat, the first thing we've got to notice is they tried to control God. They tried to control God. Notice what they don't do. Remember, there's a prophet of the Lord established who speaks to the people on behalf of God, he's at Shiloh. <laughs> they don't say, oh, why has the Lord defeated us? Quick, let, let's go and inquire of Samuel. Let's go and ask the Lord what's gone wrong. Let's listen to his word. They don't say that. We know that Samuel slept there in the, in the, 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 the house of the Lord next to the tabernacle, next to the, next to the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. They would have had to kind of go past Samuel to, to get the ark and, uh, and bring that out to the battle lines. They, they don't listen to God's word. It's as though by bringing the ark out onto the battlefield, they think they can put God in a position where he just has to rescue them because his honor's at stake. There's the ark out on the battlefield. He'll have to rescue them. I can remember as a child uh, trying to do uh, a similar thing to my mum, <laughs> trying that same tactic. used to always want my friends to come over after, after school and we'd plan it all at, at, at mealtime at school. We'd say, right, uh, after, after school, you come with me. Uh, we'll go to my mum and when she's with your mum, I'll ask <laughs> if you can come for tea. <laughs> and the I- idea was, well, I don't know whether I, I thought it through this clearly as a little child, but the idea was when my mum's there, and my friend's there, my friend's mum's there, it's going to be much harder for her to say no, <laughs> particularly if there's no kind of reasonable excuse. I kind of put her in a, in a, in a place where her, her honour's at stake <laughs> and she has to say yes. I think that's what's going on here. The desire is not to seek God, but to control him, not to submit to him, but to use him, not to listen to his word, but to get him to do what we want. And we can fall into that same trap, can't we? Where God just becomes a means to an end. I remember a conversation I had once with a man who was in his 70s and he was asking what I did. I told him about this role I have here at the church. And he said to me, I used to I used to be really involved in a church. I used to be there on a Sunday. I used to sing in, in the choir. I used to... I used to do all of that. I used to believe in God. And then he said about 15 years ago, his wife was diagnosed with dementia. And even though he prayed, she didn't get better. And so he said he just left all that behind. It's a painful illustration, isn't it? But can you see what he was thinking? He was thinking, if I, if I do my bit, then God has to do X, Y, Z. That kind of thinking can infect us in all kinds of ways. As I said, that's a painful illustration, but isn't it the case that it's often in our pain, in our trial, in our defeat, that the, the truth about our heart is revealed? What's our heart singing? Is our heart singing, thou art worthy? Or is it singing, thou art useful? The question I've asked myself this week as I've looked at this passage is, am I worshipping God? Am I just trying to use God? What lies behind my acts of devotion? Do I read the Bible and do I pray because, well, when I do that, life goes better and I feel better? Do I read the Bible and do I pray because I want to meet God? I want to know him. I want to, to love him. Israel tried to control God's power. They also failed to see the real problem. See, when the leaders asked the question, why has the Lord defeated us today? The answer, the answer should have been obvious. Let me read verse four and see if you can spot the problem. So when the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Can you spot the problem? Here's the ark, the representation of the presence of the holy creator God. And there alongside the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, who do not know the Lord, who are godless, wicked, worthless, corrupt men. It's a charade, isn't it? It's a pretense. It's a mockery. And Israel knew that. Israel had Samuel's word. They knew that Eli and his house, Hophni and Phineas, were under judgment. And when they asked the question, why has the Lord defeated us today? They should have looked back at history as well. Because they'd had around 200 years of repeated defeats. And on every occasion, the problem wasn't because of the size of the enemy or the strength of the, the armies that were facing them the problem lay within themselves and their own unfaithfulness to the God who they were in covenant with. And so when Hopney and Phineas come over the horizon, carrying the ark, the right response would have been sackcloth, ashes and loud lament. Yeah. That's not what we get, is it? Because sin makes us blind. Sin makes us blind to our real problems. What do we get in verse five? As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. There's this kind of ear splitting, earth shaking, heart (laughs) jangling cry that goes up from this great army of, of men. It's a cry of confidence, but it's a misplaced confidence because they failed to see the real problem. And this second defeat is going to be even more painful than the first defeat. Commenting on these verses, one writer says this, the Lord will allow you to be disappointed with him if that will awaken you to the kind of God he truly is. God cares more about his people's holiness than he does about their temporary comfort, more about their faithfulness than the appearance of success. I've noticed a a tendency in my own life that when things are hard, when things aren't going well, when, when things are painful, when I feel frustrated or defeated, my my kind of knee-jerk response is to just look quickly for a solution. Something just to fix it, something just to make everything better. But if we're understanding this passage rightly, a better first response would be to take some time for humble, sober, self-examination before the Lord in light of his word. That's what we should do when life is painful and, and times are difficult. Not look so quickly, for a solution. What else do we see as we think carefully about defeat? We see that Israel experienced the weight of the Lord's word. The weight of the Lord's word. This uh, news of, of the arrival of the ark uh, coming into the camp uh, of Israel, the, the great shout that went up, the, the Philistines hear that and they say, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. They've they've heard the gospel of Egypt. They've, They've heard what God did to the Egyptians and how he decimated them with plagues. And perhaps it's stupidity or perhaps it's bravery or a combination of the two, but they set themselves to fight against the Lord and his people. And the result, it says, the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. The ark of God was captured. The two sons of Eli, Hopni and Phinehas died. 30,000 men died that day. That's a bloodbath. And yet just two are mentioned by name. Hopni and Phinehas And those two are singled out because the writer of 1 Samuel wants us to see what's happening here. The Lord is fulfilling his word. The Lord is doing what he said he would do. Judgment is coming on the house of Eli. Remember what the Lord had said to Eli back in chapter two? He said, this shall come upon your two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, it shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. This is the Lord working out his word. I just want you to think for a minute. Uh, just imagine how this would have been reported on the news channels in Philistine territory. Imagine what you would have read in the, the Philistine Gazette the day after this battle. You'd have read all about the defeat defeat of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. You might have got a picture of some Philistine general with his foot on the ark. It would look like the Lord had been humiliated. And yet when we, we look beneath the surface, actually, actually the Lord is just fulfilling his word. And it was in fact this day of dishonor, For the Lord. This day of dishonour was the day when the Lord was beginning to protect and restore his honour as he dealt with the corruption in the leadership of his people. What looks like defeat is actually the Lord's doing, and the people feel the weight of the Lord's word. And as we go through the rest of the passage, the weight of God's word is only going to get heavier. What we're going to do as we look more quickly at the second half of this passage is we're going to try and feel the tragedy of glory departed. This is verses 12 to 22, the tragedy of glory departed. News of the defeat comes from the battle lines back to Shiloh. There's this runner, this messenger. He, he sounds like he's in a bit of a state, doesn't he? He's dirt on his head, he's, his clothes are all ripped. Eli, the very old Eli, 98 years old, we're told. He's watching. He's at the city gate. He, 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 he sat on his chair. It's a strange thing that he's watching because he can't see. His eyes have, have gone now. Uh, and it's as though the messenger runs right past him and into the city brings news to, to Israel of, of what's happened on, on the battlefront. The Philistines have won. Israel are defeated. The Ark of God are captured. Hophni and Phineas are dead. And, the, and the, the cry goes up in Shiloh and, and Eli hears that cry. And finally, the messenger makes it to, to Eli. And he brings the news to Eli. Eli says to the man, he's trembling, we're told. He's trembling because not for concern of his sons, but for the ark of the Lord. And Eli asked the man, what happened? And the man says, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hopni and Phinehas are dead and the ark of God has been captured. And, and the author makes, makes it clear that it's not the news that his two sons have died that upsets him, as upsetting as that would have been. What's the final straw for Eli is that the ark of God has been captured. And it's when he hears about the ark, we're told that he falls off his chair and his neck breaks and he dies. We're told that he's heavy. He's a heavy man. That word heavy, it's the same root word for glory. Glory is a is a weighty thing. And here the, the one who's judged Israel for 40 years lies dead at the side of the road and the tragedy deepens even further. Eli dies and then Ichabod is born. The news of Israel's defeat and the capture of the ark and the death of Hopni and Phinehas as a a fatal effect on Eli. He also has a detrimental effect on Phineas's wife. She's heavily pregnant. She goes into labour. Sounds like it was a difficult labour. She becomes unwell, and the, the women that attend her try to comfort her. They say, "You've had a son. You've had a son." But Phineas's wife only just has enough strength to name. The child before she dies. And here's what she names the child Ichabod. Ichabod. And the name just literally means no glory. Where is the glory? And she explains why she's called the child Ichabod because the glory of the Lord has departed, because the ark of God has been captured. may have a little footnote at the bottom of your Bible. The translation could be the ark. The the translation could be the glory of the Lord has departed. Or it could be the glory of the Lord has gone into exile. This is a desperate day. I think we only really need the details of the text, don't we, to feel the tragedy of what it is for God's glory to depart. The presence of God's glory brings life and light for God's people. His departure means death and darkness. And really, the the story that we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, this story of exile, of the departure, of the glory of God, it's a kind of a preview of something that's going to happen later on in the, in the Old Testament. God's people, by and large, are going to be marked by unfaithfulness. And eventually, God is going to send his people into exile in Babylon. And everything they had that would mark their special relationship with the Lord, the temple, the, the, the temple. The city, it's all going to be laid waste. It's going to be the, the lowest point. And in the land of Babylon, the prophet Ezekiel will see a vision. And it's a vision of the, the glory of the Lord departing from the temple, leaving Jerusalem and going into to Babylon. No glory. The glory's departed. That's what people who, who use God, who try to control him, who don't worship him, that's what such people deserve. And we are such people. Just think back to the Garden of Eden. There was an exile there, wasn't there? The people are shut out from God's presence, shut out from his glory. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all fall under the weight of his word. And just as Ichabod is the the summary of this kind of desperate day, Ichabod, no glory. Ichabod ought to be the epitaph over every single one of our lives if we got what we deserved, no glory. I'm so thankful, I'm sure you are this morning that Ichabod isn't the end of the story. Last week, uh, towards the end of the message, I think we went to John chapter one and we're gonna go there again because we read in John chapter one of the coming of Jesus And it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And then what does it say? We have seen his glory. The glory, yes, it departed, but in the Lord Jesus, the glory has returned. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus, on the night before he died, he prayed this prayer. He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus Jesus wants us to to see his glory and to share in his glory. No glory doesn't need to be the end of the story. And Jesus desired for us to see and share his glory so much. He was willing to go to the cross. It's just, it blows out our mind that the glorious son would go to the cross in our place. He would be cut off. He would be exiled. He would suffer humiliating defeat in our place (laughs) for us. So that if we would come to him and trust him and receive him, the story of our lives wouldn't have to be no glory. He came to us so that we could say with the apostle Paul, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The glory of God is what we would most deeply desire if we were seeing things clearly. And in the Lord Jesus, we can have the hope of the glory of God. And so what I want to say to you this morning is basically what I want to say every Sunday morning. If you're a Christian, keep trusting Jesus. Keep coming to him. Keep turning away from your own sinful heart. We don't do that perfectly. None of us do. But turn again and come to him and know that he wants to share his glory with you. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus this morning, it it doesn't matter how your life looks. The reality is, is at the end of the day, if you don't know Jesus, The story of your life, the summary of your life is Ichabod, no glory. And so I would urge you to trust in Jesus, to keep on trusting in him and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I'm going to pray uh, and then we'll sing together and Edwin's going to come and lead us through our time of communion. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We recognize your word is a weighty word. We thank you, Lord, that in, the, in Jesus Christ, you've made a way for us to know your grace and escape your judgment. Pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would bring us, if we're not already, to the point of trusting in Jesus. And keep us trusting Jesus until that day we see you face to face. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen.